two, one. Good morning uh, and thanks for your patience. Welcome to Grand Rounds for uh, Providence Medford for February. Uh, we're having trouble with uh, the audiovisual in the room, so we're trying this in a hybrid way off the laptop. Uh, they were happy to have Dr. Tracy Haley, uh, one of our general surgeons, um, speak on the surgical management of breast cancer. Dr. Haley. Good morning. All right, good morning. So sorry about uh, starting late. Again, had a little bit of some audiovisual difficulties, so we'll try to run through things. So um, this is titled Surgical Management of Breast Cancer, but really we'll, you know, sort of be talking about uh, small pieces um, that come into the group management of breast cancer, which is uh, not always surgery. Uh, as we all know, breast cancer is common. Um, about one in uh, eight women uh, will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. That's average risk. Uh, there have been back and forth debates about uh, screening protocols. Currently, American Cancer Society recommends uh, considering starting uh, screening between the ages of 40 and 44, annual screening from 45 to 54, and then uh, annual versus every other year. Um, after uh, 55. Uh, recommendations are to continue screening as long as the patient's healthy and expected to live 10 years, which I know is always, um, you know, difficult to completely predict. Um, but I would say that uh, maybe something to just sort of think about um, as our patients are getting older as to whether or not they should continue to be having these routine screenings, uh, you know, well up into their advanced ages. Um, High-risk patients uh, are considered uh, high-risk if they have greater than 20 to 25% lifetime risk. Um, these patients should start screening mammography at age 30. Um, consideration of uh, starting screening breast MRIs at age 30, um, and then alternating mammograms and MRIs so that some imaging is done uh, every six months. Uh, consider clinical breast exams one to two times per year, and then consider referrals to surgery to discuss uh, preventative or prophylactic mastectomies and consider referrals to oncology to discuss uh, chemoprophylaxis um, such as with tamoxifen. Um, lots of ways to try to assess what a patient's risk is. Um, there are different models out there. None of them are perfect. Gale model uh, may underestimate risk in patients who have a strong family history as it only includes first degree relatives. The Chirocusic model is better when you have an extensive family history but um, likely overestimates the risk in patients who've had previous atypical biopsies. Genetic testing is becoming a lot more common. Patients with BRCA1 and BRCA2 uh, deleterious gene mutations are estimated to have up to an 85% lifetime risk for breast cancer as well as an elevated risk for ovarian cancer. Um, other high-risk genes um, that are included on most of these multi-gene panels um, are, are uh, listed here. We don't have as much data on some of these genes as far as what their true risk is, just that it's elevated and uh, controversy on what the uh, recommendations are um, regarding prophylaxis, um, but at least it's something you can have a discussion about high-risk screening. Um, a little bit of an aside before we get to breast cancer, um, I often see patients that are referred over because they've had a biopsy showing these high-risk lesions. I use the term high-risk lesion and say that these are not obligate precursors uh, to cancer. A lot of patients are sent over believing that they have pre-cancer um, 
they really don't require treatment in and of themselves. However, if a patient has a history of an atypical ductal hyperplasia or a lobular carcinoma in situ uh, on biopsy, then their lifetime risk for breast cancer is elevated and the risk is um, cumulative somewhere between one and one and a half percent per year. Um, other thing just to note, we all wish that we could get rid of the terminology of lobular carcinoma in situ. Um, this is not breast cancer. It's considered a high-risk lesion as opposed to ductal carcinoma in situ, which um, is considered breast cancer. So now your patient has an abnormal mammogram. Um, wanted to discuss um, needle biopsies versus surgical excisional biopsies. Um, needle biopsies are usually done with a, a core biopsy. Occasionally people are still doing fine needle aspirations, but usually a core biopsy. Um, and we do do those in the office um, if somebody comes in with a palpable mass, but really because our screening is uh, pretty good, most of these are being found on imaging and it's usually a radiology guided uh, biopsy. Excisional biopsies are deferred to when somebody has had a, a needle biopsy and they have indeterminate pathology such as one of the high-risk lesions or maybe they have a needle biopsy that came back benign but what we're seeing on the biopsy doesn't really um, explain what we're seeing on the imaging or a discordant finding and that's when we would go to um, surgical biopsy but needle biopsy is always the preferred method if possible knowing the details of the pathology um, can influence the next steps in treatment Many breast cancers are now indicated for upfront or needle adjuvant chemotherapy, and so knowing that um, uh, diagnosis with a needle biopsy and getting information about the, the cancer can help um, guide treatment. And if you can prove that it's a benign with a needle biopsy, you can avoid unnecessary surgery. I have patients that are um, recommended for a needle biopsy by a radiologist and are sent over saying, well, I, I just want it out, so let's do a surgical biopsy, and this is the explanation that I give to them for why we always start with a needle biopsy because it, it really may change um, what we're doing. Um, knowing the receptor status for breast cancers um, is mandatory and knowing the next steps. Again, I mentioned that many of these cancers are now treated with upfront um, systemic therapy. So um, the patients who have HER2 positive or triple receptor negative cancers, um, knowing that information about the tumor, which we can get that information on the needle biopsy, um, may sway us away from going to the operating room up front. Um, patients been diagnosed with a breast cancer, lots of times there's recommendations for staging uh, MRIs to be performed. Uh, this is um, you know, something that's done often, probably more than it really needs to be done. It really should be done only if it's gonna change the surgical management. So um, for example, if somebody um, has already decided that they're gonna have a mastectomy or they have some reason why um, that's the recommendation, then getting a staging MRI to, to determine if they're a candidate for uh, breast conservation. If it's not gonna change anything, it uh, you know, probably shouldn't be done. There's a 15% false positive rate with MRIs. So it is a cam of worms that sometimes has to be dealt with once it's been opened up if there's a suspicious lesion found on MRI. Um, and ideally, um, the decision to do the staging MRI should be deferred to the consulting surgeon. Distance staging studies, sometimes I have patients who um, have been diagnosed with cancer and um, they're being sent for uh, PET scans and CT scans and other things. And that is indicated in some cases, but usually with more advanced disease, with inflammatory breast cancer, um, some stage three disease, and, or if they have signs or symptoms of distant metastatic disease, but it's not part of the routine workup for um, early stage breast cancers. Um, American Joint Committee on Cancer uh, changed their cancer staging for breast cancer a few years ago. 
um, the classic TNM system with the T being tumor size, uh, node being nodal status, or N being nodal status, and M being um, presence or absence of distant met uh, metastases. Um, is still used, but there's a prognostic staging component that puts more emphasis on the biology of the tumor. Um, uh, the estrogen and progesterone receptor status, the HER2 overexpression status, and the tumor grade. Um, and it really makes sense because it gives you more prognosis um, uh, on what the patient's outcome is going to be um, than the old TNM system did. This is a kind of a busy slide. But it gives you sort of an example that up at the top you see a stage 1A that's um, very early breast cancer, um, a, a T1 tumor, so up to two centimeters, nodes negative, but it's a low grade estrogen positive and HER2 negative. Uh, I don't know if I can show you, but you can't see in the bottom one because it's partially covered up. Sorry, is that you have the same size tumor, small tumor, nodes negative, but now it's a higher grade of estrogen progesterone and HER2 uh, negative, so a triple receptor negative, and that biology bumps it up to a stage two, um, just indicating a somewhat worse prognosis. So um, going back to the mid-70s, the NSADP um, began doing uh, trials looking at um, outcomes with breast cancer surgery. Um, historically, uh, breast cancers were treated with modified radical mastectomy, so breast was removed, chest wall muscle was removed, lymph nodes were all removed. And the B4 study showed um, that there were equivalent survival outcomes between um, uh, mastectomy um, with or without radiation uh, versus a radical mastectomy, which was where the chest wall muscles were uh, resected. And so basically that kind of took the radical mastectomy um, off the table, um, which was for the better for the patients. Um, and then the NSAB6 uh, study um, was kind of a landmark um, results coming out in the, the mid-80s showing that there were equivalent survival outcomes between lumpectomy or partial mastectomies with or without radiation and mastectomy. So now more and more women were being offered breast conservation surgery um, with uh, equivalent survival outcomes. Um, and then also with this showed that there was a decreased uh, risk for local recurrence when radiation therapy was added to the lumpectomies, but the radiation really didn't affect survival benefits. Um, so decision uh, tree, you know, somebody's diagnosed with a breast cancer and trying to determine what type of surgery is going to be offered. So breast conserving surgery or, or the lumpectomy or partial mastectomy. Um, if the uh, inside tumor invasive cancer is felt to be resectable with um, the ability to get clear margins um, and uh, overall good outcome, then, then a patient is a candidate. So the size of the tumor, the size of the breast, location of tumor are all important. Um, sometimes if somebody uh, presents uh, with a more bulky tumor and really desires breast conservation, there are options for giving upfront uh, systemic therapy, either chemotherapy or hormone uh, 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 blocker therapy to shrink the tumor in order to be able to offer that patient breast-conserving surgery. Um, I often tell my patients, you know, it may seem weird up front that I may be telling them that they should have a mastectomy because they're going to get a poor cosmetic outcome from an overzealous lumpectomy. But once you've done the surgery, scar tissue begins to heal, radiation is added to it, you can end up with a a pretty asymmetric, misshapen, scarred, firm breast that there are not a lot of plastic surgery options out there um, to fix, whereas with the mastectomy, reconstruction surgery can be offered and, and overall their um, cosmetic outcome uh, may be better. 
So contraindications to breast conserving surgery. Um, early pregnancy is a contraindication because of the inability to offer radiation. Uh, multicentric tumors, um, not necessarily multifocal, so you can have two or three small uh, tumors in a, in a close area, but if you have tumors in, um, involving more than two quadrants, um, where you're not able to resect that in block um, and still get a good outcome, then that's typically a contraindication for uh, breast conserving surgery. Um, diffuse uh, large areas of um, malignant calcifications, which we sometimes see with diffuse DCIS. Um, inflammatory breast cancer um, is never treated with breast conserving surgery. And then if you've um, done a lumpectomy, you have positive margins, you've gone back, you you know, try to get uh, clear margins, and each time you're um, getting persistently positive margins, ultimately a mastectomy may be indicated. Um, over the course of the last um, 10 to 15 years, there's been, um, you know, uh, ongoing discussions about what does a clear margin mean? Um, you know, at one point it was five millimeters and two millimeters and one millimeter. Um, there was a very large uh, um, study uh, that came out several years ago, basically uh, saying that as long as there was no tumor on ink um, and the patient is going to be having their uh, recommended adjuvant therapies, that that's a sufficiently clear margin. I don't know that this is going to project very well. That's the pointer. So maybe hard to see here. Um, uh, but basically, you can see some of these little white calcifications, but if you had a better picture, you'd see that this basically, this whole area is encompassing calcification. So this is an example of a patient with basically really diffuse DCIS um, that would not be amenable to uh, partial mastectomy. That looks a little bit better. So you can see all of this, all of this white in here. This is an example of a multicentric tumor. So um, honestly, this one's not horrible, horrible, but um, these two areas maybe not too far apart, but the one over here in the CC view, this is going to be a pretty big area, almost more than a quadrantectomy to be able to get all of this encompassing in one, and this patient may be better served with a mastectomy. This is an example of a presentation of inflammatory breast cancer, um, uh, showing the um, edema and uh, erythema from the lymphatic invasion, um, and again, those patients are never offered breast conservation surgery. So just a quick topic of oncoplastic um, breast conserving surgery. Some patients um, who may not otherwise be a candidate for breast conserving surgery because of the large size of the tumor, um, if they have large native breast tissue and they're uh, willing to undergo a reduction surgery, we can do a very generous partial mastectomy, get our pathology, make sure margins are clear, and then at an uh, interval, usually maybe a week later, the plastic surgeon comes in and basically rearranges and does a reduction and moves um, other tissue to fill that void, and then with a contralateral reduction for symmetry. So um, lots of patients um, do not have palpable tumors. Um, luckily, we're finding these early on screening imaging, and this just talks a little bit about how do we actually um, know, you know what and where to remove. So Historically, we used wire localization, so um, on the day of surgery, either under ultrasound or mammographic guidance, the radiologist would uh, place a wire in um, that would go down and basically point to where the tumor was, and that became the roadmap. 
limitations here that it has to be coordinated the day of surgery just makes a longer day for the patient and sometimes um, harder to get it all uh, scheduled between the, uh, the two service lines. Um, and then some limitations for where the surgical incision is placed. Um, do you imagine if somebody's uh, squishing a mammogram and they're trying to fish a wire in, sometimes they really have to come in from really lateral or medial um, and uh, traversing several centimeters of breast to get to the target because they can't put the wire um, straight through the, the mammogram plate. Um, recently, we've switched over to most of the time using what's called a radio frequency ID tag. So this is a, basically a, 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 a little um, chip tag that gives off a radio frequency signal. Again, it's placed under radiology guidance. It can be put in days to weeks in advance, so it's a lot easier for scheduling. Um, and uh, basically, um, is a little probe that allows you to identify where that tag is and guide the surgery. This is an example of a wire localization. So this is this wire coming in with a little barbed hook. Um, and you can see that it, you know, the target is pretty far down and the rest of the wires have been from way up here um, at the top and makes it a little harder to sort of decide where you're gonna place your incisions for a cosmetic standpoint. This is an example of this radio frequency ID tag. Um, it's about, it's a little less than a centimeter in size in real life. And then this is the little tag um, that's been placed. So now this is here um, and you can choose wherever you want to make your incision because you have this little device, this handheld probe that basically allows you to identify where it is in the breast. And there's constant feedback where you can be measuring how far away you are from that as you're doing the surgery. Um, just a little side note, I've been using these for a couple of years now and um, uh, with a, a lot of the uh, politics here over the last few years with uh, COVID vaccines and other things, I've never really thought of microchips much, but I had a patient who didn't want to be microchipped, so she scheduled for a wire. <laughs> this is an example of um, a lumpectomy that was performed. We do a, a x-ray of the specimen as we remove it to make sure we have our target, so here's our small little mass. This is the biopsy marker that was placed at the time of the original biopsy and here's our radio frequency ID tag. So it gives you an idea a little bit of your uh, gross margins and to make sure you have removed everything. So uh, if a patient's been determined not to be a candidate for uh, breast conservation surgery, um, then we talk about mastectomies. Um, it's typically the recommended treatment for a patient who's previously had breast cancer treated with breast conservation and radiation because radiation can only be given to that tissue once, although there are some more limited studies, um, especially in Europe, that um, they may offer repeat lumpectomies without radiation, especially for lower grade tumors and older patients. Um, mastectomy is typically recommended um, if there are other contraindications such as pregnancy, um, inability to position for the radiation. So some older patients have a hard time with the positioning that has to be done for the radiation. Uh, not really hard and fast contraindications um, are scleroderma and uh, lupus, some other connective tissue disorders, although I've had plenty of those patients treated um, uh, and they've done well. Um, some mastectomies done, done for prophylaxis for high-risk patients. So, Way back when the Halsteadian uh, mastectomy was the radical mastectomy as we discussed before, so it's removal of the breast tissue, removal of the uh, pectoralis major and sometimes minor muscle and a uh, full axillary node dissection. This is really not performed as it's not been shown to improve overall survival and carries with it a huge amount of morbidity. 
Modified radical mastectomy just means that we've done a mastectomy of removal of the breast and a level two lymph node section. A total or simple mastectomy is just removal of the uh, breast tissue um, without the node uh, uh, dissection. Skin sparing mastectomy is done when we're um, planning reconstructions or we're trying to leave some extra skin behind. We're now doing nipple sparing mastectomies in some patients. And then I'll just talk a little bit about the aesthetically flat mastectomy because this is a buzzword that we're um, hearing from a lot of patients um, nowadays uh, when they've decided that they don't want to undergo reconstruction. So uh, reconstruction um, is usually an option for most patients who are undergoing mastectomy. There are reasons why we recommend immediate versus delayed, and sometimes that has to do with whether or not we think they're going to need um, a lot of other adjuvant uh, treatment, especially radiation, and sometimes it's um, based on the uh, plastic surgeon's recommendation. But there are basically um, implant reconstructions and flap reconstructions. Um, there is uh, usually an expander place for most implant reconstructions. This is placed behind the chest wall muscle. Um, things uh, heal for a couple of weeks, and then over the course of several weeks in the plastic surgeon's office, they do fills of that expansion to stretch that space out, and then it's a second surgery um, later to take the expander out and put an implant. So I always um, stress to the patients that this is a, you know, we, we use the term immediate reconstruction, but it, they don't wake up with a finished product, and it's a multi-stage process that can take several weeks to months, depending upon the patient. This is what's com uh, most commonly offered here locally. Um, some plastic surgeons will directly put an implant in without doing the expansion process. Uh, usually those are young, healthy patients with small breasts, um, maybe higher complication rates um, with this surgery. And when this was first being done, uh, they used these textured implants that um, have now been recalled due to the risk of breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Um, those aren't used now and there are some other options, but um, some patients have uh, will um, ask about that, um, about the, the risk of the lymphoma. This is just a diagram basically kind of showing the process of here we're flat, the mastectomy, this is uh, a mastectomy has been performed. The expander is put in behind the pec muscle. There's a valve in this expander that they use a little magnet to bring up. And then on a weekly basis, typically are putting more and more fluid in to, to get that expansion. This is just a basically talking about the direct implant with these. They often are recreating a pocket using uh, alloderm, which is a um, engineered uh, biomesh to kind of create more of a space so that they don't have to go through that whole expansion process. Tissue flap reconstructions, uh, transplant um, is basically where they're uh, taking uh, one or both if they have bilateral of the rectus muscles um, it's on a, a pedicle that is swung back up uh, to the chest, and they basically lose rectus muscle function, which um, isn't so great for your core strength. Um, a latissimus flap reconstruction, um, uh, basically it's just that, use part of latissimus muscle. Um, because it's not a large pedicle, usually there's an implant also required, and again, they lose some of that function, so it may not be the desired option for somebody who's you know, an avid golfer or tennis player. The deep reconstruction, uh, deep inferior epigastric perforator artery. This preserves the rectus muscle. So basically um, it's the skin and fat pedicle of the abdominal wall. 
um, which is disconnected from the perforator artery and then uh, re-implanted um, to our arteries of the chest wall. So um, preserves the rectus muscle, no implant required, does require specialized microsurgery training and equipment and is not offered here locally. Um, so most of those patients have to travel um, to have that performed. Really quickly, just a picture of the tram flaps so the rectus muscle has been removed and you can kind of see it tunneling up um, but still connected to its blood supply. The latissimus flap is basically swung from the back over to the front. And then the deep flap um, where the muscle strips are still here intact and the microvascular connections are put back up into the, the chest wall. So flat closure. Um, a lot of patients now are talking about flat closures. I've read articles where, you know, patients that they wanted to go flat, they didn't want to have reconstruction, and their surgeon left skin on purpose in case they changed their mind. I don't know if that's really happening out there. I certainly have never done that if, if my patient tells me they don't want reconstruction. But I'll also say that um, with some of our patient population with significant obesity, um, patients who have very large native breast tissue, um, a lot of ptosis in their breast, it can be difficult to not have redundant skin and dog ears and other things. So we really don't do it on purpose. Things always look relatively flat when we close things in the operating room, but as they heal in gravity, they can have um, extra things. These are some examples of, you know, where somebody maybe left extra skin um, versus the flat. This is an example of a very redundant dog ears and things after a mastectomy, and then a patient who's gone back and had a, a, a scar revision that often does involve having a scar run all the way across in order to not have these kind of dog ears and redundancies. I don't know how we're doing on time. Okay. So um, lymph nodes. Lymph nodes uh, are usually something that we're addressing when a patient's been diagnosed with an invasive breast cancer. Um, historically, 25 years ago, Almost all patients with an invasive breast cancer were getting uh, an axillary node dissection. Uh, level one, level two node dissection was performed. Those lymph nodes were all sent off. And if the results came back with no evidence for metastatic disease, that was great news for the patient, but it was a really difficult part of the surgery to recover from. Um, certainly a, a lot more painful, requires a drain, has a lot of potential downsides. Um, it's still done routinely for patients who have inflammatory breast cancer. We still do axillary node dissections. It's still done for patients who have positive sentinel nodes, and we'll talk about that. Or for patients who've under, uh, who have biopsy-proven nodal metastasis who undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy and don't have a complete response. So it's not that we don't ever do it, but um, certainly not routinely like was done in the past. So sentinel node mapping biopsy um, started uh, initially for melanoma and then uh, transitioned over with um, uh, being used for breast. Um, basically, uh, the concept is that you can map um, the lymphatic flow from the breast to the axillary nodes, identify which node or nodes are the first in line to drain the breast, remove those for um, pathologic evaluation, honestly, a lot more carefully evaluated than when we were sending the uh, pathologist a couple of dozen nodes. And if those were negative, it was found um, that the risk that there were positive nodes that were left behind was very low. So we got information that helped with prognosis, helped with staging, helped with making decisions about adjuvant treatment, 
without a lot of the downsides. So it is performed for patients who have clinically negative nodes. Um, so um, nowadays, a lot of patients are also getting imaging of their nodes when they're diagnosed, but if the nodes aren't palpable and they look abnormal on imaging, um, we're still recommending a sentinel node procedure because um, we'll talk about in a minute where they, they may still not benefit from a full lymph node dissection. Um, we also will use it for patients who have a complete clinical response um, after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and even some of those patients um, will be able to avoid the node dissection. Uh, incidence of lymphedema with sentinel node mapping and biopsy is uh, reported to be 5%. Um, I would say that, you know, of those 5%, um, it's mild. I mean, it's very rare to ever see somebody having to have a sleeve or other uh, uh, kind of compression here after a sentinel node procedure. Um, I, there are allergic reactions documented to uh, lymphazurin, which is one of the, the dyes that we sometimes use. Um, so that's a possibility. There can be pain at the injection site. Um, when we do the radio tracer injection, um, there's a decrease in of nerve injury, and certainly the recovery is easier than the axillary node dissection. This is an example of uh, injection. So uh, basically, the dye is injected typically into the intradermal uh, location, the periareolar region of the breast, um, and then uh, flows up to where the lymph nodes are. Historically, this was done with both the radioactive uh, tracer dye as well as the blue dye. Um, I don't know how long it's been now, probably 15 years ago, there was a worldwide shortage of the blue dye. Um, and so a lot of us uh, sort of got used to doing it with just the um, radioactive dye alone. Um, so I don't routinely use the blue dye in every case now, but there are still times that we use it. Um, it stains the skin. Uh, temporarily um, and it gets metabolized by the kidneys and so they get up to pee the first time after surgery and it's turquoise green which is um, kind of a shock if I forget to tell them that beforehand. This is an example of a um, blue stained dye, uh, blue stained <coughs> node. Um, this is kind of an archaic piece of equipment looks a little bit different now but um, essentially a fancy Geiger counter so we have a probe that allows us to, this is the probe here, um, trace the radioactive dye uptake. Um, the, blue, the blue stained dye uh, node um, is seen here, and we don't have a very good picture of it here, but you often can see the individual blue lymphatics that'll trace you um, to where those nodes are. So for those patients that do still have an axillary node dissection, their risk of lymphedema is pretty high, up to 25% or more. Um, that risk uh, is higher in patients who have both an axillary node dissection and radiation therapy to the nodal basin, and it's increased with obesity. Uh, there's a risk for nerve injury. Um, almost all these patients have some sensory nerve um, damage, so they have loss or decreased sensation in the back of the arm and in the armpit area. They can have hypospecies in that uh, location as well. Um, theoretic risk of lung thoracic nerve injury causing winged scapula. Um, although that uh, really should be a fairly low risk. It's documented to be maybe somewhere between five and 10%. Um, so once we started doing the sentinel node procedures, um, when that was first uh, introduced, we would find a sentinel node or nodes intraoperatively. We would send that lymph node to the pathologist for an intraoperative frozen section review. And if they called back into the room and said that they saw cancer, we would do a full lymph node dissection. 
A lot of times uh, we found no additional positive nodes and um, there you know, was a question about how much that lymph node dissection actually benefited those patients. So a Z11 trial basically looked at that question and they randomized patients with early stage breast cancer, clinically negative nodes, so no palpable adenopathy. Um, and if they had up to one to two sentinel nodes that were um, found to contain metastatic disease, half of them had a completion node dissection and half of them were um, observed but went on to have their recommended adjuvant therapy, which um, typically involved radiation because these patients were having breast conservation surgery. Um, they found no difference in local regional recurrence or long-term survival. So as long as the nodes are clinically negative um, and if we don't find more than two microscopically positive sensible nodes, um, we don't go back and do uh, a lymph node dissection for those patients and we don't send them for frozen sections intra-op either because um, it, it may not change what we're doing. So do all patients need to have lymph nodes removed? Um, this is kind of a, a newer question um, where starting to find just like we did with the mastectomies where we went from radical mastectomies to simple mastectomies to now breast conservation surgery that we may not be needing to remove these lymph nodes at all for some patients so patients with advanced age serious medical comorbidities um, if the results uh, won't affect our decision making then you have to kind of ask, ask the question why are you taking them out at all um, if a patient has pure in situ cancer and they're having breast conservation surgery. By definition, this in situ cancer shouldn't be metastasizing to lymph nodes. Um, so we're, we don't uh, do sentinel node biopsies on those patients. However, if they're having a mastectomy and they have DCIS, we will often do that procedure because if invasive cancer is found on the final pathology and I've done a mastectomy, I can't go map, I can't go back and map the, the lymph nodes in the breast. Um, and um, then you have to have this decision to do you just not stage them at all or, or do you do a completion node dissection and somebody who might not need it? So current guidelines are that for patients greater than uh, equal to 70 years of age, uh, early um, tumors less than five centimeters, clinically negative lymph nodes and estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancers um, that uh, we may be able to, to avoid taking lymph nodes out at all. I need to move things along here. So a little bit about radiation. Um, this has been the standard of care following breast conservation surgery. Um, estimated that there's a 15 to 25 risk for local recurrence over 10 years without additional therapy. That can be whole breast or partial breast radiation. can be given over a three to six week course of treatment. And these are uh, daily treatments, Monday through Friday, five days a week, um, each session about 10 or 15 minutes long. Some patients with mastectomies also do require radiation. If they have tumors more than five centimeters in size, four more positive lymph nodes, positive margins after a mastectomy, chest wall or skin invasion, inflammatory breast cancer. Um, usually these patients have a longer course, six to six and a half weeks of treatment. Recently, a Lumina study came out that suggested that um, Breast cancer uh, patients who are undergoing breast conservation surgery who have more favorable tumors um, may not benefit significantly from radiation. So these were smaller tumors, um, uh, two centimeters or less, lower grade, one to two, um, at least a millimeter margin, 
um, estrogen positive, HER2 negative, and a, and a low KI67, which is uh, one of the pathology uh, results given that sort of implies uh, how rapidly these cells are uh, dividing and growing. Um, and if they're going to be treated with adjuvant uh, endocrine hormone blocker therapy, um, that their risk for local recurrence without radiation uh, was very low, um, only about 2.3% at five years, and they really didn't benefit much more to the radiation. So um, again, it may be that less is more. So systemic therapy, um, most breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive, and most of these uh, patients benefit from endocrine therapy for estrogen uh, blockade. Tamoxifen was the first line medication, uh, which basically looks like estrogen, but sits in the estrogen receptor uh, and blocks uh, regular estrogen from turning it on. This is uh, still used for premenopausal patients. Aromatase inhibitors are the second line, um, which basically uh, block the, the, the last kind of enzymatic conversion um, of uh, estrogen formation. Uh, in non-ovarian pathways, so this is used for uh, postmenopausal women. Um, patients may be on therapy for 5, 10, 10 plus years, depending up, up, upon varying factors. Chemotherapy um, is given for most triple receptor negative cancers. It's given for patients who have most, most patients who have HER2 new overexpression positive cancers and for more advanced stage cancers. Recently, I keep saying recently, it's been uh, several years now, the question uh, has come up, you know, uh, why do some patients with early stage breast cancers show up with metastatic disease, you know, later when we didn't think they would and, and do all of these other patients that were given chemotherapy, are they really getting benefits? So uh, Oncotype DX recurrence score is a 21 gene uh, recurrence score assay that um, is used for either node negative or limited node positive uh, patients um, who have estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative pathology. It assumes they're being treated with a hormone blocker, and it helps determine whether or not there's a significant benefit to chemotherapy and decreasing the risk for distant metastatic recurrence. So some of these early stage breast cancer patients, even postmenopausal patients with up to three positive nodes, if this recurrence score shows a lower risk profile, um, they may not benefit from chemotherapy, and it uh, hopefully is keeping us from over-treating. Vice versa, some patients with early-stage breast cancers are found to have uh, more high-risk um, uh, biology of their tumors, and uh, they're being offered chemotherapy when they may not have been in the past. Uh, immunotherapy. Um, so HER2-NU is a protein overproduced in some breast cancers. Um, Perceptin and progeta are monoclonal antibodies that are effective against that protein, um, and these are usually given along with chemotherapy for those cancers. Capsilla is a, I kind of talk about these as being these magic bullets, so this is basically an antibody connected to a chemotherapy agent, you know, so now it's going out and finding the cells that have this HER2 expression and bringing the, the chemotherapy agent directly to them. Triple receptor negative breast cancers are also um, now being treated uh, more commonly with immunotherapy in combination uh, with their chemotherapy. And this is just an exploding um, uh, area of research. And it seems like, you know, every month or two, there's a, a new one of these uh, coming out and hopefully will uh, continue to benefit um, these patients with higher risk cancers. So, um, 
because I started this as, you know, surgical treatment of breast cancer and went off on all of these other tangents, it just kind of gives you the idea that this is definitely a multidisciplinary um, treatment. So you're going to have a general oncologic or breast surgeon, you're going to have a medical oncologist involved, you're often going to have a radiation oncologist involved, a dedicated breast radiologist is going to be important for uh, doing your image guided biopsies, um, having specialized training in uh, reading your MRIs, dedicated breast pathologist um, is going to be important. Most uh, places now um, are starting to more often have a clinical nurse navigator, and I can't say enough about Kate Newgard here at the Providence Breast Center and how much of an asset she is and, and a blessing to our patients, being able to guide them through what is a, a very complicated and scary process at times. And then most cancer programs are also going to have a survivorship program. So you can imagine going through all of this treatment and all of a sudden somebody says, okay, ring the bell and you're done. And a lot of these patients, you know, it's they don't feel like they're done. There's a lot of um, support that needs to happen even after they've gone through their preliminary treatment. Um, on that note with the multidisciplinary, just to let everybody know that we do here locally have a weekly tumor board um, that since COVID came along is available online. You don't even have to show up um, in person anymore. And that's uh, multidisciplinary across uh, all different types of cancer, but we have just here um, this year recently started back up a breast specific um, tumor board that meets um, twice a month on Tuesday mornings um, from seven to eight. The other tumor board um, is Wednesdays from seven to eight and that's run through the um, Asante Cancer Registry. Um, but it's pretty simple to reach out to Carolyn Clark there if you're interested in being put on their email um, as far as with the weekly agenda. Um, you can sign in remotely and um, there's always interesting conversations. It's attended by the oncologist, the radiation oncologist, um, various discipline surgeons, um, pathologists and radiologists. And it seems like I learn something new each time, even if it's not a, uh, a breast specific um, present, uh, uh, presentation. Um, but if you have um, uh, patients um, that you've referred over, you may see some of them being presented and um, their CME credit that um, is available as well. So, um, questions about uh, any of that? I know that was kind of whirlwind. Yeah, um, thanks Dr. Haley. That was a lot of information and good information. Uh, one question I have, um, you know, in primary care, and we'll have a mammogram, they'll get the letter about dense breasts and then yeah. they ask their yeah. primary care doc what to do. Yeah, you know, it, it. that's the problem. The guidance is talk to somebody, what should I do? So, um, you know, the question is, and, and this, this letter, um, I think you all know, is um, was basically a, a, a law. You know, yeah. we, we now have to um, offer this. And um, some of those patients, I think, do um, benefit from MRI screening, you know, and um, I think you have to kind of look at each one of them individually. How dense is the breast? How old is the patient? What are their other risk factors, family history? Where do they fall in some of these risk models? Um, because I don't think everybody needs an MRI, um, but um, but that's really what the question is 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 asking, and I don't think that there's a, a hard set answer. You know, I can't give you a formula that says yes, this person does, this person doesn't. But um, I don't mind seeing those patients. You know, some patients aren't very worried about it, but some of them will bring this up, and um, especially if you have somebody who's you know younger, meaning you know less than 
less than 55 and um, has a family history or certainly if they've ever had previous biopsies, then it's worth having a just sort of a risk assessment discussion. Um, you know, even with the patients who are high risk, where I've calculated them a 30 to 40 percent risk, uh, lifetime risk for breast cancer, we still don't have really solid data on, okay, do they really need an MRI every year? Is every two every day okay? Is every three every day? How long do you keep doing yeah. that? Um, so it's a vague answer to your question, but the problem is we, you know, we don't have, you know, hard fast rules. Do you tend to use one of the risk calculators more than the other? Um, I've typically used the Tyracusic, but like I said in my presentation, it very much overcalls risk in patients who've had previous atypical biopsies. Um, so if somebody had a biopsy that showed atypia and they're 70 years old, it may give them this, this huge risk factor. That's probably more than it should be. Um, but I like it if, um, you know, because it, it does involve density of the breast and it, it, you know, even involves, you know, other lifestyle things like, you know, their BMI and, um, and it, you can put more than one generation of um, family history in there. Um, so I use that one, but if they've had atypia, then I may use some of these others where I've just kind of calculated 1% per year based on their age. The Gale model is fine. It's actually probably pretty good, but um, we just have to know that it may, may underestimate risk in, you know, so maybe somebody, because uh, it just looks at first degree. So, so if somebody's family history is that mom didn't have it, but maternal grandma and three maternal aunts, and you know, it's it's not going to take any of that in. So I, I use the both. So as the field of, <clears throat> of cancer genetics increases, mm -hmm. um, what do you offer in the, in the way of genetic counseling yourself and do you refer people locally yeah. or regionally for that if needed? So I tend to deal with affected patients more than non-affected, but so there are clear NCC and guidelines, high-risk criteria for patients who meet uh, recommendations for testing for um, hereditary uh, cancer syndrome, if you're a breast cancer patient who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so part of that, any triple receptor negative cancer now qualifies, um, diagnosed at younger ages, multiple family members. However, the American Society of Breast Surgeons came out with a consensus guideline several years ago that says, we, hey, we think everybody who has breast cancer should be offered that testing. And so then for a while, it was, okay, well, we think everybody should be tested, even if only you know less than 5% of those are positive, it may be really important for that breast cancer patient in making decisions about her treatment. Um, but as you all know, insurance takes a while to catch up to those recommendations. And so most insurances follow the NCC and guidelines, but not necessarily um, that. And I don't know if I'm allowed to do this here, this is not necessarily a plug for one genetic testing versus another, but the one that I use has actually basically kind of offered that, you know, if, if somebody has breast cancer and you they want to be tested, I can order that test and they'll bill their insurance. And if their insurance denies it, um, they basically eat most of the the cost and their out-of-pocket cost is only like $250 as opposed to $3,500. So we're able to test most of these patients. And so I will counsel them and tell them what that has to do with, um, you know, how we might change the surgical management of their cancer or their future prophylaxis. 
I'm not doing a lot of assessment for non-affected patients, but sometimes I do. Somebody comes to see me because they have an abnormal mammogram and we start looking into their family history and I say, hey, you know, really, maybe you should be tested. So I feel comfortable for, for the breast cancer and I feel comfortable counseling them on what that information means for their cancer. The problem with most of these um, tests is there's about 45 other genes in there now that I don't know very much about and we don't have genetic counselors here locally. Again, most of the companies that do testing, the two bigger ones, Myriad and Viate, offer genetic counseling over the phone for patients and that's it's not a one-time, you know, they can call as many times as they want, they can get the family members on for, you know, group calls, whatever, and so that's available. And then I have um, in the past referred patients to OHSU that's, that they do still have a telehealth um, a genetic counselor available. Um, but if, you know, the expansion criteria that just came out for colorectal cancer patients um, and genetic testing, they're, they're expanding the recommendations almost to the point of any patient diagnosed with colon cancer should be offered testing. And I'm sure it's not very far away that it's gonna be part of primary care. You know, I mean, just it's gonna be offered testing and then that's going to guide how people are going to be screened and stuff in the future, but. Thank you. Yeah. Doesn't look like we have any more questions from the online audience, so. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Dr. Haley and Thank thanks for uh, the great care you've given my patients over the years. Uh, I've lots of folks and really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.